نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يبقه قولي ربنا زدنا علما باب عرق الجنوب وأن المسلم لا ينجس عرق is the sweat so the sweat of الجنوب the person who is in the state of Janaba meaning is that Tahir or is it غير Tahir? Is it something clean or is it something that's impure? Because the person is in a state of impurity. وَأَنَّ الْمُسْلِمَ And that the Muslim, the believer, لَا يَنْجُسُ He does not become impure. He is never in the state of impurity. And this is from a hadith. So what we learn over here is that the body of a believer, what is it? It is Tahir, it is clean. And the only thing that is impure about it is what? The najasa on it. Therefore, the saliva, the sweat, the skin, the hair, the tears, all of them are tahir. Regardless of whether a person is in a state of tahara sughra or tahara kubra, or he is in the state of tahara or the state of ghair tahara. Meaning a person could be clean, a person could just have wudu, a person could be in the state of janaba, it does not matter. Regardless of the state of the status of tahara of a person, remember that the body is always clean. And the hair, the skin, the tears, you know, all of this is clean. The only thing that is unclean is what? The impurity that is excreted from the private parts. That's the only thing that is unclean. And if that is on, let's say, the hand of a person, on the skin of a person, then obviously that area will be considered impure. But other than that, the person, his body is clean. Therefore, a believer, he can touch clean things and whatever they touch does not become unclean either. So for example, a believer in the state of Janaba, can they shake hands with another person? Yes, they can. If they have touched some clothes in the state of Janaba, do those clothes become unclean? No. If they have touched water, does that water become unclean? No. So they can touch clean things and whatever they have touched does not become unclean either. Because remember that a human being never becomes an untouchable. A human being is never an untouchable. And remember that this is not just for a believer, but also for a non-believer. The human body, whether of a Muslim or a non-Muslim, whether that body is alive or that body is dead, remember that body is clean. Whether alive or dead, believer or non-believer. Meaning that it is free of najasa hisiya. It is free of physical impurity of tangible impurity. So it is never a source of impurity. And this is why a disbeliever's food, a disbeliever's drink, his saliva, his sweat are also clean. Not just of a believer, but also of a non-believer. So if he drinks from something or sits somewhere, then that thing does not become, does not become unclean. It is still clean. And what's the evidence of that? The evidence is that the book of Allah permits marriage with who? The women of the people of the book. And if marriage is permissible with them, that means that their body is clean. Otherwise, living with them would be impossible. It would be impossible. So remember that the badan, the body of a believer, and the body of a disbeliever, both are tahir. But remember that the disbeliever, the non-Muslim, he does have najasa ma'nawiyya. 
meaning intangible or you can say spiritual uncleanliness. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah At-Tawbah that Ya ayyuhal ladina amanu innamal mushrikuna najas fala yaqrabul masjid al-haram ba'da amihim hadha that they are najas, impure, therefore they should not enter the sacred mosque. Why? Because of their spiritual state of uncleanliness. But a believer, remember, he does not suffer from najasa hisiyya, nor does he suffer from najasa marnawiyya. Meaning the body of a believer is clean, regardless of the status of his tahara. And secondly, he also does not suffer from najasa marnawiyya. I mean, they're, they're also non-Muslim, right? Because a non-Muslim, his body is not unclean. Okay, regardless of what religion he is of, the body is not unclean. And the evidence is that Allah has permitted marriage with a certain kind of non-Muslims. Exactly. They all have najasa marnawiyya, but not najasa hisiyya. Yes. This is in the case of the Masjid al-Haram. Okay, this is in the case of Masjid al-Haram, which is in Mecca. But other than that, the other masajid, they don't fall in, in the same category. Is this clear then? So Imam Bukhari, he says that Araq al-Junub, that the sweat of the Junub, you know, the question about that, that is it clean or is it unclean? So what's the answer? It is clean. Wa la yanjus. The believer does not become najis. حدثنا علي بن عبد الله قال حدثنا يحيى قال حدثنا حميد قال حدثنا بكر عن أبي رافع عن أبي هريرة أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لقيه that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم met who? Abu Huraira where في بعض in some طريقي path roadway المدينة of Medina meaning he met him somewhere outside on a road وهو جنوب while he was in the state of Janaba who was? Abu Huraira was so Abu Huraira, he said that فَنْخَنَسْتُ minhu. So I secretly slipped away, meaning I secretly went quietly without even telling the Prophet ﷺ, I left. And this word in خَنَسْتُ from خَنَّاس, okay, it's the same root. فَذَهَبَ So he went, فَغْتَسَلَ And then he took a bath, Abu Huraira. ثُمَّ جَاءَ And then he came. فَقَالَ So the Prophet ﷺ, he said, أَيْنَ كُنْتَ Ya Abu Huraira, where were you, O Abu Huraira? Meaning, where did you go? He was just there a few minutes ago, and then he disappeared, and then he returned. Qala, he replied, Kuntu Junuban. I was in the state of Janaba. Fakarihtu, so I disliked an ujalisaka that I should sit with you. Wa ana, and I am ala ghairi tahara on other than tahara, meaning I did not wish to sit with you while I was not clean. I did not wish to sit with you in the state of uncleanliness. فَقَالَ So the Prophet ﷺ replied, Subhanallah, Glory be to Allah, إِنَّ الْمُؤْمِنَ لَا يَنْجُسْ Indeed, the believer does not become impure. Meaning, so what if you were in the state of Janaba? Your body is still clean. So you can sit with other people. You are not a source of impurity. Touching you, sitting with you, does not transfer the impurity on other people. So a believer, remember, he is Always tahir, his body is clean. And we see that the Prophet ﷺ would be in the lap of Aisha anha, meaning his head, and she would be menstruating, and the Prophet ﷺ would recite Quran in that state. So even a woman who is menstruating, remember her body is also not unclean. 
the junub, his body is not unclean, and a menstruating woman, even her body is not unclean. But we see in this hadith that the respect that the companions had for the Prophet wasallam. Hmm? That Abu Huraira, he felt shy, he felt embarrassed, he did not wish to sit with the Prophet ﷺ in the state of Janaba. He was okay walking around in that state, and he must have met other people too, but he did not wish to be with the Prophet ﷺ in that state. So he quickly went, took a bath, and returned. Then we also see in this hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said, Subhanallah. Out of what? Surprise. Out of amazement. So Subhanallah is a kalima that can be said in, you can say, uh, when a person has istihsan or istighrab. Istihsan is when a person likes something. So when you see an amazing you know, cloud up in the sky, then what do you say? Subhanallah. When you see something beautiful, when you like it, out of appreciation. And the other is out of surprise, istighrab. When you find something a little strange from gharib, ghayn raba. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Subhanallah, this is istighraban. Okay, this is with istighra, meaning he was amazed that how could Abu Huraira think like that, that his body was impure. Bab al-junubu yakhruju wa yamshi fi wa So the first principle that's established is that the body of the junub is clean. Now, the junub person, he can yakhruju, he can go out, wa yamshi, and he can walk fi in the marketplace, wa and other than that, meaning he can also go to other places. So, in the state of Janaba, first the body is clean, and secondly, because of that reason, a person can also go out. He can go to someone's house, he can attend a class, he can drive to a store, he can work in the garden, he can go walk in the park, he can do the normal things that people do. Meaning, it's not necessary that a person should take a bath immediately. If there is a reason that a person has to delay, and he needs to go out, can he do that? Yes, he can. And remember that غيره, according to some scholars, okay, غيره, that a person can go and walk and go different places, this includes, according to some scholars, the masjid as well. Because if a non-believer can enter the masjid, then a believer can also. And especially if there is a class in the masjid, then can a person in the state of Janaba, can they go attend that? If they have to, if they must. Meaning they don't have the chance to take a bath. And remember that at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Ashab al-Sufa, where did they reside? In the masjid. And for men, it is something very normal, very frequent that they will have wet dreams and as a result they will be in the state of Janaba. And it was not necessary that as soon as a person entered the state of Janaba, he would go take a bath. Abu Huraira, we see that he is walking around in the state of Janaba and he met the Prophet ﷺ. So, غيره, according to some scholars, includes the masjid. But this is in the state of who? The junub. We're not talking about the menstruating woman. Inshallah, when the menstruation comes, we'll get there. But according to some scholars, the menstruating woman can also go to the masjid when there is a need. Like for example, there is a class. Or there is a social event, a social gathering at the masjid. The masjid is a place that is, you can say, a multi-purpose area. Where it's more like a community center, which is exactly how the masajid are these days. So, غيره, according to them, includes the masjid as well. وَقَالَ عَطَاءٌ and عَطَاءٌ He said, يَحْتَجِمُ الْجُنُبُ The junub can have hijama done. Meaning he can have cupping done. Are you familiar with cupping? It's a treatment, you can say, which is found in the sunnah as well. The Prophet ﷺ also had it done. So, a junub person can have hijama done. وَيُقَلِّمُ أَضْفَارَهُ And he can even clip his nails. 
or have them clipped by someone else. وَيَحْلِقُ رَأْسَهُ And he can shave his head or somebody else can cut his hair for him. وَإِن لَمْ يَتَوَضَّ And even if he has not performed wudu. And obviously if a person is getting hijama done, if he's getting his manicure or pedicure done, she, or um, they're getting a haircut, then obviously that means that other people will touch them. And that a person will have to go somewhere. You don't always get home service, right? You also have to go. So a person has to go, has to drive. Then can a person do that? Yes, they can. Even if the person did not perform wudu? Yes, they can. Like for example, if a person says they are in the state of Janaba, but they want to get a haircut and then they want to take a bath once. Can they do that? Yes, as long as their salah is not affected, they definitely can. There is absolutely no harm in this. What's the evidence? حدثنا عبد الأعلى ابن حماد قال حدثنا يزيد بن زريع قال حدثنا سعيد عن قتادة أن أنس بن مالك that Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu حدثهم he narrated to them أن that indeed نبي الله صلى الله عليه وسلم that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يطوف that he would go around to visit who على نسائه his wives, في الليلة الواحدة, in the same night. وله يومئذ, and he had on that day, تسع نسوة, nine wives. We have read this hadith earlier, that the Prophet ﷺ would go to all of his wives in the same night, and obviously that means, going out of the house of one, to the house of another. Because we know that they lived in separate hujurat, right? In separate houses, separate apartments. So he would have to come out of one, and go to the other, so that means he is coming out and going somewhere. Can a junub do that? Yes, he can. Can he go to the house? Can he go outside? Yes, he can. حدثنا عياش قال حدثنا عبد الأعلى حدثنا حميد عن بكر عن أبي رافع عن أبي هريرة قال he said لقيني رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم met me وأنا جنوب while I was in the state of Janaba فأخذ بيدي so he took my hand. Meaning he held my hand. Now imagine what Abu Huraira must be going through. That first of all, he meets the Prophet ﷺ. He probably doesn't want to see him, doesn't want to greet him because he's embarrassed. Right? He feels guilty. And then on top of that, the Prophet ﷺ holds his hand. فَمَشَيْتُ مَعَهُ So I walked with him. Prophet ﷺ was walking, so I walked with him. حَتَّى until قَعَدَ The Prophet ﷺ sat down. When he sat down, فَانْسَلَلْتُ Then I slipped away. I secretly went. فَأَتَيْتُ الرَّحْلَ And then I came to my stopping place. الرَّحْل Literally a stopping place. A stopover. رِحَال رِحْلَ Is a journey. So رَحْل is where a person stops. You know, in the journey. So I came to a stop, meaning home. And over there فَاغْتَسَلْتُ Then I took a bath. ثُمَّ جِئْتُ And then I came to who? To the Prophet ﷺ. وَهُوَ قَاعِدْ And he was still sitting. فَقَالَ So he said, أَيْنَ كُنْتَ يَا أَبَاهِرْ Where were you? O أَبَاهِرْ فَقُلْتُ لَهُ So I said to him, meaning I told him where I was. فَقَالَ سُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ So he said, glorified is Allah, يَا أَبَاهِرْ O أَبُهِرْ إِنَّ الْمُؤْمِنْ Indeed the believer لَا يَنْجُسْ He does not become unclean. So in this hadith is the evidence that a person can go out in the state of Janaba. There is no problem in that. He can even meet others. There is no problem in that. What other lessons do we learn in this hadith? 
that the Prophet ﷺ, he held the hand of Abu Hurairah Why? Out of love? Out of friendship? So it is perfectly fine to hold someone's hand. Like for example, if you greet them okay, with your hand and their hand isn't your hand. Can you hold their hand for some time? Yes, you can. Can you walk with them while you're holding hands with them? Yes, you can. But unfortunately, this is considered something incorrect these days because of whatever negative thinking that people have developed and also the, the behavior of certain individuals. Because of that, this practice has, is considered wrong. But there is absolutely no harm in this. That not just holding the hand, but the Prophet ﷺ, meeting him outside, recognizing him, greeting him, walking with him, giving importance to him. And then when he disappeared and he returned, noticing that he had gone and asking that, where were you? Because sometimes it happens that if we see someone in class, then we really give importance to them. But if we see them outside, then they're nobody or we don't give much importance to them. That if we know somebody from somewhere, don't just acknowledge them in that place. But if you meet them elsewhere, acknowledge them over there too. Give them respect and love that they deserve in other places as well. What else do we learn? He did not know the unseen. The Prophet ﷺ did not know the unseen, that he did not know where Abu Huraira went and why he went, the intention behind. He did not know because he was a human being unaware of the unseen. Exactly. The answer that he gave is relevant to everyone. Yes. That the truthfulness of Abu Hurairah that he was not shy of telling the Prophet why he went, where he went, to do what. Because, you know, we are shy of this and we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to tell other people about it. But if there is a need where other people have to be informed, then a person should not feel shy and lie. That Abu Hurairah, he didn't just go and he was gone. No, he came back. Because the Prophet gave importance to him. So he really wanted that and he returned. That it clarifies many doubts and it really removes the burdens that people have imposed on themselves. That a person in the state of Janaba cannot walk down the stairs or cannot cook something or cannot do the laundry or cannot talk on the telephone. They can do that. That the desire of the companions to be in the state of cleanliness. I mean, there must have been a reason why he delayed the bath, whatever that reason was. But when he met the Prophet ﷺ, he wanted to be clean immediately. And so he did not delay. One more thing we see here is that how quickly Abu Hurairah took a bath and returned. That the Prophet ﷺ was still sitting there. And we cannot imagine that the Prophet ﷺ would, you know, waste his time sitting somewhere just randomly. No, he was a busy person, someone who was always doing productive, beneficial things. So we can only imagine that he sat there for some time, not for too long. So Abu Hurairah went, took a bath and returned. Right? So being quick in our showers is something that we must start doing. The kunya of Abu Hurairah, remember it is both Abu Hurairah as well as the Prophet ﷺ called him over here, Ya Aba Hir. Okay? Because uh, Hir is a cat and Hurairah is a small cat or a kitten. So this was the kunya of Abu Hurairah, both were kunya, he was known by both. But we see the Prophet ﷺ, especially he called him Ya Abahir. Now why did he have this kunya? Because he 
loved cats. It is said that there was a kitten that he would have in his sleeve, that he would carry it in his sleeve, meaning, you know, holding it. And he liked the cat and the, and the cat also liked him back. And this is something very beautiful that it really shows to us that the Sahaba, they were normal human beings. They actually had a life, you can say. They had a life. They weren't boring people. They were not dry people, you know, who had no kind of culture or no fun or nothing that they would love or enjoy. No, they were normal people who had lives, who enjoyed lives, who led good lives. Because when we, you know, think of religiosity or becoming serious about the deen, that means everything simple, dry, you know, nothing to relax with or have fun with. No, this is something that human beings need. And especially having a pet is something that is very, you know, pleasing to a person. Those of you who have pets, you know what I'm talking about. I remember as a child, we had so many pets in the house. So many. I remember we had so many birds which, you know, multiplied to at least 80 that they were killing one another. So we had to get rid of some. And I was a little girl, I would come back from school and I would spend hours just looking at the birds, you know, fixing one thing or the other, feeding them, giving them water, playing with them, you know, a cat and a bunny and one thing after the other, pigeons, fish. Because children, they need to be exposed to animals. You need to look at the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are many lessons that can actually be learned from these animals. These animals, especially cats, when they're loved, they know they're loved and they give love as well. They give importance as well. I've heard of many stories where, you know, people who have their cat or something, as soon as they come home, the cat will run to them. I have seen myself even. It's amazing. It's a healthy thing for them too, because animals, they require a lot of service, right? So you have to work for them. You have to take care of them, maintain them. So it makes the children responsible. It keeps them busy and away from unnecessary things too. That we see that the Prophet ﷺ noticed that Abu Huraira was gone and he asked, he inquired that what happened. Because sometimes we don't ask thinking that we are interfering into the personal matters of someone. But if someone is not coming, then you have a reason to ask. Many of us are kind of uncomfortable. You know, there's a feeling of discomfort in being in the state of Janaba and doing something else, like for example, cooking or driving or going out somewhere. That we feel that it's necessary that a bath should be taken immediately. Remember, there should be no discomfort. Why? Because we see that the companions and even the Prophet ﷺ, they would defer the bath until when necessary. In a hadith that we learned earlier, we read that the Prophet ﷺ, he was in state of Janaba, he was in the masjid, and he was about to start praying, and he remembered that he was in the state of Janaba, he took a bath and then returned. So there is no harm, there should be no discomfort. When the allowance is there, then there should be no discomfort. A person should not feel that he is doing something wrong, that he is sinning. But this does not mean that a person keeps on deferring and delaying okay, unnecessarily, because definitely... In the state of Tahara, a person feels different. You know, you're able to recite the Qur'an. You know, you can pray nafil. You can pray as soon as you want. It is a different state. So a person should try to get out of the state of Janaba as soon as possible. But if there is a reason to defer, don't put yourself in difficulty. Don't put yourself in difficulty. Because this actually has many effects 
on the personal lives of people. That they think that because they will have to take a bath, this is why they will defer intimate relations until, you know, later and later and later. And it affects the relationship of a husband and wife. Because they feel that it is necessary to take a bath immediately after. It is not necessary. Okay? So there should be no discomfort. باب كينونة الجنوب في البيت إذا توضأ قبل أن يغتسل كينونة the staying off كينونة is from كان يكون كونا وكينونة to be to exist so كينونة الجنوب the staying of the جنوب person where في البيت in the house meaning a person is not going out he's in the house so he can take a bath whenever he wants but he stays in the state of جنابه in the house. But what does he do? إِذَا تَوَطَّأَ When he does wudu, قَبْلَ أَنْ يَغْتَسِلَ Before he does ghusl. So a person just does wudu, he doesn't take a ghusl, and then he defers the bath until whenever it is convenient for him to take a bath. Meaning there is no urgent pressing matter for which he has to leave. He is at home, and when you are at home, you can take a bath whenever. So if he wishes to defer the bath, then what should he do? Wudu. If a person is at home or even going out and for a reason the bath is deferred, then what can they do? Just do wudu. And if he's not able to wudu, then it doesn't matter. So what do we see? It is best to do ghusl. That's not possible, do wudu. If that's not possible, even that's okay. Even that's okay. Now, there is a hadith which is a weak hadith which states that in al-mala'ikata la tadkhulu baytan fihi kalb wala sura wala junub that the angels do not enter a house in which there is a dog a sura meaning a picture or a junub there is a disagreement with regards to the authenticity of this hadith the majority of the scholars consider it to be not authentic but others consider it to be authentic that the house in which is a junub person then angels do not enter over there if for the sake of argument it is considered authentic then how do we understand that when a person deliberately, without any reason, unnecessarily keeps deferring, keeps deferring the bath, and let's say from Fajr until Zuhur time for several hours in the state of Janaba, he's, you know, unclean, didn't even wash up, then obviously the angels will stay away from a person. Because angels are attracted to what? Cleanliness. And shayateen are attracted to filth. حدثنا أبو نعيم قال حدثنا هشام وشيبان عن يحيى عن أبي سلمة قال سألت عائشة He said I asked عائشة أكان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يرقد Did the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم Did he used to يرقد Did he used to sleep وهو جنب While he would be in the state of جنابة قالت نعم She said yes he would ويتوضأ But he would perform wudu So where do you sleep? At home So a person can stay in the state of جنابة At home for even extended period of time, he can even sleep in that state. But what's best that he should do? Wudu. But if that is not possible, then that is also okay. In a hadith we learn in At-Tirmidhi, عن عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ينام وهو جنب ولا يمسما That the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم would sleep in the state of Janaba and he would not even have touched water. Meaning, he would not even have performed wudu. So, a person has to see the situation that they're in. Let's say if they're just going to take a nap for an hour, or half an hour, they're going to sleep for maximum two to three hours. Then can they sleep in that state? Yes, they can. But if they're 
off for the night. They're going to be sleeping for, let's say, six, seven hours. Then what's best? That they should take a bath. If that's not possible, then do wudu. Okay? Then do wudu. Bab naumil junubi. The sleeping of someone in Janaba. Meaning a person sleeps in the state of Janaba, he doesn't take ghusl, doesn't do wudu, neither tahara sughra nor kubra. This is also permissible, but remember that it is makruh. Okay? It is permissible, but it is makruh. That a person sleeps in the state of absolute ghayb tahara, he should at least have wudu. حدثنا قتيبة قال حدثنا الليث عن نافع عن ابن عمر أن عمر بن الخطاب سأل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم He asked him أيرقد أحدنا Can one of us sleep وهو جنب while he is in the state of جنابة قال he said نعم Yes إذا توضأ أحدكم فليرقد وهو جنب That when one of you does wudu then he can sleep even though he is in the state of جنابة So a person can sleep without wudu because there are other ahadith that prove that. But it is best to do wudu and then sleep. And obviously ghusl is afdal. Makruh, when a person sleeps without even wudu. Meaning in the state of absolute ghayb tahara, he is in the state of janaba, no wudu, no ghusl, he sleeps like that. Is it permissible? Yes it is. But it is makruh. So it should only be done in You know, a situation that is beyond a person's control. Like, for example, the water is cold. They're not able to take a shower. Or if they take a shower, then the shower is so loud, so noisy, that people who are sleeping will get disturbed. For example. Or it's the middle of the night. Then in that case, a person can sleep like that. But remember that it is makruh, so it should not be a habit. Only it should happen in a situation that is beyond a person's control. باب الجنوب يتوضأ ثم ينام الجنوب he should perform wudu and then he should sleep so in the previous باب what did we learn sleeping without wudu even over here Imam Bukhari proves that it is better to sleep with wudu حدثنا يحيى بن بكير قال حدثنا الليث عن عبيد الله بن أبي جعفر عن محمد بن عبد الرحمن عن عروة عن عائشة قالت شي سد كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا أراد أن ينام When the Prophet ﷺ would intend to sleep, وَهُوَ جُنُبْ And he would be in the state of Janaba. What would he do? غَسَلَ فَرْجَهُ He would wash his private part. وَتَوَضَّأَ لِلصَّلَةِ And he would do wudu like he would do for salah. So these are two things that should be done. The washing of the private part. And secondly, the performance of wudu. حَدَّثَنَا مُوسَى بْنُ إِسْمَعِيلِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا جُوَيْرِيَةِ عَنْ نَافِعٍ عَنْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ قَالَ إِسْتَفْتَى عُمَرٍ Umar radiallahu anhu, he istafta, he asked for a fatwa. From who? An-Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that ayanamu ahaduna, can one of us sleep, wahuwa junub, while he is junub? Qala na'am, idha tawadda. Yes, when he has performed wudu. Haddathana Abdullah ibn Yusuf, qala akhbarana Malik, an Abdullah ibn Dinar, an Abdullah ibn Umar, annahu qal, dhakara Umar ibn al-Khattabi li Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, annahu, that Umar radilahu anhu, he mentioned to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that he tusibuhu al-janaba, that janaba reached him min al-layl in the night, meaning in the middle of the night, he entered the state of janaba. Faqala lahu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, so the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to him, tawadda, do wudu, waqsil dhakarak, and wash your private part, summanam, and then sleep. And take the bath when? On waking up. 
And as I was reading these hadith, I was really thinking that may Allah reward Umar anhu for having the courage to ask a question because this really, you know, helps people. Because it's not always possible for a person to take a bath before sleeping. So because of this, there is a great allowance. There is a great convenience and ease. So if you summarize all of the hadith that we have learned over here, what do we see? That when a person is in the state of Janaba, he is not obligated to take a bath immediately. It is not an obligation on him to take a bath immediately. No, he can defer the bath until whenever possible, whenever feasible, and that should be absolutely before when? Before the next prayer. And in the case where a person does not do ghusl, then what should he do? He should do wudu. Whether he is staying in the house, going out, or going to sleep, what is best that he should do? Wudu. But if that wudu is also not possible, then he can remain in that state as is, and there is no sin in that, but this is makru. So a person should not have this habit of staying for prolonged periods of time in the state of Janaba. A person should not have that habit. Now from this, someone had asked a question that a Junu person, if he wishes to sleep, then he should do wudu. So a woman who is menstruating, should she also do wudu before sleeping? Because we learned in the hadith that, you know, the Prophet ﷺ told a companion that when you go to sleep, then do wudu, and then lie down on your right side, and then say the dua, and if you die in that state, then you will die on the fitrah. So, should a woman who is menstruating also do wudu before sleeping? No. Why? Because first of all, she is not in the state of Janaba. So the rulings of Janaba do not apply to her. Secondly, her performing wudu will not let her obtain any kind of tahara. Because a junub, when he does wudu, he has tahara sughra. That does not allow him to pray, but he is you know, closer to tahara. But a woman who is menstruating cannot obtain any kind of you know, tahara sughra or kubra until the bleeding stops. Okay? Until the bleeding stops. So as long as she's bleeding, she cannot have wudu, basically. Alright? She cannot have wudu. So can a woman sleep like that? Yes, she can. Of course she will have to. She doesn't have a choice. This is why haid is called haid. And is there any sin on her for that? Not at all. Should she feel guilty? Not at all. This is a break that Allah has given to her. So she should enjoy it. Even the menstruating woman, if there is a need for her to go to the masjid, then she can. Like for example, there is a class or something, then she can. Even for Eid, the Prophet ﷺ told the menstruating women to come to the place of Eid prayer and he told them to stay on the side. Meaning, The reason for that was so that the rows could be straight. Not because they should not enter the area which is for prayer because that place was not a masjid anyway. The Prophet ﷺ would not perform Eid prayers in the masjid. It was not a masjid anyway. It was out in the open. And the reason why he told them to stay on the side was so that the rows could be straightened up and the people who are praying... You know, they are not disrupted by the constant movement going back and forth. They're just sitting randomly in the middle of a woman who is not praying. That if a woman who is menstruating, obviously she's not going to do wudu, but she's going to sleep in whatever state that she is in. And she should do whatever she can do. So for example, she should lie down on the right side. She should say her adhkar and the dua. And whatever she has missed out on because of her inability, she will still be rewarded for it. If she had the habit to do it otherwise.
Because when a person does something regularly, and then if for you know a reason that's beyond their control, they're not able to do it, then their reward is still written. Because if they were able to, Allah knows that they would have done it. So make it a habit in other days, so that when you're menstruating, you don't feel guilty. And you can still earn the reward inshallah. When the two khitan, they meet. What does it mean by khitanan? Khitanan is a dual of khitan. And it refers to the circumcised area, meaning the private part. So the two khitanan, what does that mean? The circumcised male part and the circumcised female part, meaning the male private part and the female private part when they meet. So in this case, is ghusl necessary? Yes, it is. Earlier we learned that a person is only junub when they have inzal, meaning they have sexual pleasure, whether it is in sleep or when awake. And secondly, on sexual intercourse, whether or not they have inzal. Now, the meeting, the joining, the, the contact of the private parts, that is included in the second category. Sexual intercourse. That is included in the second category. What's the evidence? حدثنا معاذ بن فضالة قال حدثنا هشام حاء وحدثنا أبو نعيم عن هشام عن قتادة عن الحسن عن أبي رافع عن أبي هريرة عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال إذا جلس بين شعبها الأربع that when he, meaning when a man, he sits between her four limbs, meaning a woman's limbs, ثم جهدها, and then he penetrates her, فقد وجب الغسل, then غسل is mandatory, meaning he has to take a bath, she has to take a bath. تابعه عمر بن مرزوق عن شعبة مثله, وقال موسى حدثنا أبان, قال حدثنا قتادة, أخبرنا الحسن مثله. So basically we learn in this hadith that when there is the physical contact, meaning of the private parts, then ghusl is mandatory, even if there is no inzal, meaning even if the man or the woman or both do not have sexual pleasure, meaning they don't have orgasm, even then the ghusl is mandatory. So this proves that the touching of the private parts is a cause of janaba as well. And this is included in the second category. Now there's one more thing in this hadith, that the private parts have been described as Khitanan, the two circumcised ones. So it shows that the male private part, that is circumcised, and the female private part, even that is circumcised. The scholars differed concerning the ruling of khitan, concerning the ruling of circumcision. Some said it was wajib for both men and women. Others said that it is not wajib, neither for men nor for women. And the third opinion is that it is wajib for men, but mustahab for women. It is wajib for men, but mustahab for women. But remember that no scholar ever said that circumcision is something that is haram in the case of women, or that it is a barbaric practice, or that it has no basis in their religion. No, it does have a basis in their religion. We see that it is mentioned, a command has not been given, Meaning the Prophet ﷺ did not say that the women must be circumcised, nor did he tell the women to be circumcised. No, he did not say that. But for men, there is clear commands. You know, when men would embrace Islam, the Prophet ﷺ would say, 
For example, to one of the companions, he said that get rid of the mushrik hair, meaning of the pubic area, and get circumcised. So for men, it is absolutely clear. The command has been given. But for women, a command has not been given, but we see that it has been approved. It has been approved. Now, remember that female circumcision was widely practiced at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, and the people of the time had reasons for it. The Prophet ﷺ did not command it, and he did not even forbid it. But he did discourage, and according to some scholars, he did forbid the extreme form of it. He forbade the extreme form of it, which, in other words, is basically genital mutilation, uh, which involves the excising of the entire clitoris. Basically, it is genital mutilation. The Prophet ﷺ said to Umar Atiyah, who was a woman who would perform circumcision on females, he said to her that cut but not excessively. Cut but not excessively, for this would be more conducive to the brightness of the face and better for the husband. Meaning, do not destroy her private part. Dr. Hatim al-Hajj from Amja, and Amja is the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America, he wrote that, I believe that the part that needs to be removed in female circumcision is that which corresponds to the foreskin in the male. And that is called the clitoral hood. It was noticed that the same harmful smegma that accumulates under the foreskin of male infants does accumulate under the clitoral hood of the female as well. And he also wrote that the female circumcision that our scholars talk about that exists in Islam is different from the practices of some African communities, which include some Muslims, in which the female genitalia is mutilated. So don't think that you know this war against uh, female genital mutilation is the same as the circumcision that is considered permissible in Islam. No, it's not the same. There is a book by Muhammad al-Jibali. I recommend that you read the chapter that is in it, Our Precious Sprouts. And in that, he mentions the circumcision of females in detail, and he proves that this is something that is permissible. And he says excessive circumcision, he mentions about that, that pharaonic circumcision in the Nile Valley is as old as recorded history and continues to be practiced in Sudan, Egypt and other African countries, both Muslim and non-Muslim communities. And because of its clearly brutal and destructive nature, it is often called female genital mutilation. Pharaonic circumcision is very gross. It involves excision of the clitoris, the labia minora and inner fleshy layers of the labia majora, the remaining outer edges of the labia majora are then brought together so that when the wound has healed, they are fused, so as to leave only a pinhole-sized opening. Urination and menstruation must thereafter be accomplished through this remaining pinhole-sized aperture. So basically the Prophet ﷺ forbade this. When he told Umm Atiyah that do not do that. When he told her, cut but not excessively. And Muhammad al-Jabali, in the same book, he writes that we see that female circumcision is voluntary meaning it's not an obligation. Some scholars consider it to be preferable. Others said it's voluntary, meaning it's mubah. And he said that it is recommended for women with excessive labia growth, which is more common among women in warm climates. Why? Because it leads to you know, infections and problems. When there's extra flesh, then obviously keeping it clean constantly is something that is a challenge, which is why there can be you know, problems, this is the reason why it was practiced back then, and in Islam also, it is something permissible, but we see that it's not a must. And we see that there are reasons and benefits behind male circumcision, and there are reasons and benefits behind the female circumcision too, but remember the female circumcision, that is 
that our scholars talk about, not the one that is mutilation. Of the benefits, they reported an article that is entitled Khitan al-Banat Ru'ya Sihiyya, Female Circumcision from a Health Point of View, by Dr. Sit al-Banat Khalid. Some of them are that it prevents unpleasant odors, which result from foul secretions beneath the prepice. It reduces the incidence of urinary tract infections. It reduces the incidence of infections of the reproductive system. So there are benefits as well. So when something is allowed in the deen, then remember that there is a reason, there is a hikmah. Don't think that this is absolute mutilation. It is not. It's just, I quoted earlier, that it's just the removal of the clitoral hood, which in some women is quite large and it can actually cause complications and difficulties. It affects their sexual intercourse even, actually hurting them or their husband, and it can also lead to problems. So what needs to be understood is that this practice does have a basis in our religion. It is not obligatory, but it is considered mustahab. Therefore, we shall not fall prey to the propaganda of some groups. We see that male circumcision was also rejected and opposed, heavily opposed by many groups in the past, but today it is something that is accepted and practiced, not out of religious reasons, but for health reasons. So just because the benefits are unknown, the wisdom is unknown today, or the correct methodology is unknown, it doesn't mean that we also declare it as something that is rejected by the religion. The problem is ignorance and generalization. These two things. People don't know what female circumcision is in Islam. And secondly, generalization. They think that all types of circumcision are evil. And what's the cure? Awareness. So, first of all, we should correct our misunderstandings. We should not generalize. And if we are unaware of something, then find out. Then learn. For men, it is wajib for sure. Okay, which is why we see that in the Muslim Ummah, generally, across various cultures and countries, we see that male circumcision is something that is performed. But female circumcision, it's not even heard of in some Muslim communities. Before we continue, also one more thing, that circumcision is something that is to be performed in infancy. So if there is a woman on whom circumcision was not performed, doesn't mean that she's going to go and get it done. No, it is to be performed in infancy. Why? Because the child will experience only physical pain. But an adult, they experience physical pain as well as emotional pain. Like we see, we see that a child's body, you know, it heals faster, it's easier to heal. But an adult's body, it's you know, it takes time. They're not used to the change. Their systems are more developed. So this is the reason why uh, it should be done in infancy. There are reports where we see that the Sahaba, they would sometimes delay the circumcision of their boys until almost puberty, right before that. And the reason was so that their bodies would be stronger, able to deal with it. Because at that time, because of lack of, you know, care and, and medical supplies and all of that, it was, uh, you know, if a child was circumcised, his life would be at risk, basically. In some cases. So to avoid that, they would defer it. But today, when the scenario is different, when the situation is different, then it should be done in infancy. A question was asked by a scholar that if there's a person who embraces Islam, then what about them? Like, for example, a man. Then in that case, there are two opinions. Some scholars have said that uh, it's not necessary. Why? Because it will, like I said, not just physical pain, but also emotional pain. And secondly, their aura will be exposed you know, to someone else. Uh, but other scholars said that no, it is something that they should do, they should have done, because Ibrahim alayhi salam also did it at what age? At the age of 
80. So if a person has the strength, has the ability, then he must do it. But if he doesn't have it, then the, that's a different case altogether. Yes. Even I've heard of that, that the foreskin was not there. So because, you know, people object that why is this something that has to be done? Could Allah not create people, you know, the way they're supposed to be? That why do they have to go through this procedure, you can say? It's a test of life. It really is a test of life. You know, like for example, when my son, when he was born, I remember that I felt so, I almost felt that it was not, I don't want to say unfair, but like I felt that I had to suffer a lot. And he did not have to suffer at all. And he will not, he will never know what I have gone through. If he was a girl, you know, then she would eventually come to realize what I have gone through. But he would never know. When he had his circumcision, all those feelings went away. Because every person, you know, goes through difficulty in life. And the circumcision, especially when it's on the seventh day, that it really reminds you, life is not just about fun and happiness. Life is difficult. And Allah reminds us of that. Bismillah. One of my friends, they are a couple. And the mother, she lives in a different country and they live in England. So when she have a baby and he was crying behind the room, and then the family thought something happened to the woman. They said, what happened? He said, oh, my mommy, I miss you. I love you so much. Forgive me. So he, when he saw his wife, what she went through, he remembered his mom also. She goes through this thing. <laughs> yes. Ghasli washing off of what that which reaches, which comes from a woman's private parts. Meaning in sexual intercourse, the discharge of a woman is that supposed to be washed off? Meaning if it gets onto a man, onto her husband, does that need to be washed off? Yes, because it is also it is something that's not clean. حدثنا أبو معمر حدثنا عبد الوارث عن الحسين قال يحيى وأخبرني أبو سلمة أن عطاء بن يسار أخبره أن زيد بن خالد الجهني أخبره أنه سأل عثمان بن عفان فقال أرأيت عثمان بن عفان Someone asked him that have you seen إذا جامع الرجل when a man has intercourse with امرأته with his wife فلم يمني but he does not have inzal meaning he does not let out money he does not have sexual pleasure. Qala Uthman. Uthman, he said, يتوضأ. Then he has to make wudu. Meaning, he doesn't need to take a bath because he did not have inzal. He just needs to do wudu. كما يتوضأ للصلاة, just as he does wudu for salah. And he should simply wash his private part. Qala Uthman. Uthman said, سمعته, I heard the statement من رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. فسألت عن ذلك who, the narrator, he says that I asked this question from who? Ali ibn Abi Talib, was Zubair bin al-Awwam, wa Talha ibn Ubaidullah, wa Ubay ibn Ka'ab, radiyallahu anhum, fa'amaruhu bidalik. So they gave the same instruction. That if a person has sexual intercourse, meaning the two private parts meet, but there was no inzal, then no ghusl is required, wudu is sufficient. Qala Yahya wa akhbarani Abu Salama, anna urwata ibn Zubair akhbarahu, anna Aba Ayyub akhbarahu, annahu sami'a dhalika min Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the companions, they said, that they heard this from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Let's look at the next hadith and then inshallah I will, I will explain. Haddathana Musaddad, haddathana Yahya an Hisham ibn Urwa, qala akhbarani Abi, qala akhbarani Abu Ayyub, qala akhbarani Ubayyub ibn Ka'bin, 
انه قال يا رسول الله ابي ابن كعب هي سيد او رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم اذا جمع الرجل when a man has intercourse المراه with his wife فلم ينزل but he does not have inzal قال هي سيد يغسل he should simply wash ما مس المراه منه that which has reached him from the wife meaning the wetness that is on his private part he should wash that ثم يتوضا then he should do wudu ويصلي and he should pray So Imam Bukhari, he explains these two ahadith, that just because of the existence of these ahadith, and you know the knowledge that these ahadith are definitely authentic, a person should not think that this is what should be done. Meaning, if a person only has physical contact but no inzal, then ghusl is not required. Ghusl will be required. What's the evidence? Qala Abu Abdullah, al-ghuslu, Abu Abdullah refers to Imam Bukhari. He said, al-ghuslu, taking a ghusl, That is ahwat. That is more, uh, you can say more careful. That is safer. Ahwat is from ihtiyat. Okay, the meaning it is safer, it is better to take a bath in this situation. Why? وَذَاكَ akhir Because that was the last command. That was a final instruction that the Prophet ﷺ gave. Meaning at the beginning, the companions, they were allowed to just do wudu in this situation and just wash off the private part. But later on, this was abrogated. All right. Later on, this was abrogated. And so now, the ruling is that even if there is no inzal, still on the mere physical contact of the private parts, ghusl becomes wajib. Ghusl becomes wajib. وَذَاكَ الْآخِرِ And that is the last command. وَإِنَّمَا So why did Imam Bukhari mention this? Why? Bayanna We have clarified لِاخْتِلَافِهِمْ Because of their ikhtilaf. Meaning, these ahadith, they appear to contradict the one that we learned earlier. Imam Bukhari has mentioned all of them and has explained so that when we come across this hadith, we don't get confused. So that we don't get confused. That this is a contradiction. Earlier we learned that you have to take a bath. Now we learned that companions are saying you don't have to take a bath. So remember that that was the command earlier. Later on it was abrogated. And this is the end of Kitabul Ghusl. Alhamdulillah. Any questions from Kitabul Ghusl? If I know, I will answer. If I don't know, I will just take it down right now and answer to you later, inshallah. For sleep? I will have to check the dictionary. The difference between Naum and Raqad. If you look at Surah Al-Kahf, وَتَحْسَبُهُمْ أَيْقَاضًا وَهُمْ رُقُودٌ So look into your notes of the word Ruqud. Inshallah. That what kind of sleep is that? My question was, like, you said uh, someone can sleep without, uh, without food. I just want to, if you can point me to the hadith that uh, talk about that. What's the evidence that a person can sleep in the state of Janaba even without wudu? The evidence is Bab Naumil Junub, the sleeping of the Junub person. Now in this hadith, The hadith that is mentioned under it. The Prophet ﷺ said, نَعَمْ إِذَا تَوَضَّهَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلْيَرْقُدْ وَهُوَ جُنُبُ Wudu is mentioned, yes. But Imam Bukhari still uses this hadith because a person, he's not able to pray still. But there are other ahadith which are not mentioned here, but they are reported, for example, in At-Tirmidhi. There is also a report in Sahih Muslim, which is that كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَنَامُ وَهُوَ جُنُبُ وَلَا يَمَسَّمَاءَ Because we see that the majority of the ahadith, what do they point to? Doing wudu first. 
right? The majority of the hadith. There is a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that say that sometimes it happened to him to sleep without wudu. Mm-hmm. Why today we say it's makruh? Because what, from where the ruling comes? Because if you compare all of the texts together, if you put them all together, then we see that the majority of them emphasize that wudu should be done. But we see an exception here and there. Now that exception gives the allowance. And which means that when a person is not able to do wudu, then he can't sleep. He should not think that he's being sinful. But he should not develop that habit. Because if he develops that habit, then that is disliked for sure. If he develops the habit, then that is disliked for sure. Because the Prophet ﷺ said very clearly, when he has done wudu. So you have to put all the texts together. What do the majority of them say? And some of them, they give the allowance. Because if if that did not exist, then that would mean it was forbidden for a person to sleep in that state. Rulings of makruh. Because if I think about it, there is the mustahab, yeah. and there is the mubah, and yeah. then there is the makruh. Yeah. Like I so said, why if you we don't put it in mubah and not and we put it in makruh, because the Prophet ﷺ instructed several times okay. to do wudu. If he did not give that instruction, then it would be considered mubah. But when he said clearly to various companions, and also his habits that are reported by his wives, even when they report, even when they mention that he did wudu, then this is why it's important to wudu. Not exactly Janabra, but a similar situation came up this morning that there was no power in our house and we only had a, like a small amount of water, but it was cold, also the water. And my brother was going from home to school and straight to the, the masjid. And he felt he's one of those people who feels like he has to take a bath before uh, going to pray Jumasala. So we didn't know what to tell him to do in that state. Like, would he just take wudu and that would suffice or... When it comes to the ghusl of Jumu'ah, that is something that is necessary, okay? But it was beyond his ability, and Allah knows. And it also depends on his age. If he's past the age of puberty, then it's a different case. And if he's under, then it's a different case. So wudu is, inshallah, sufficient. We just did. You said that the question was asked to Uthman Radianhu. So, like, was this at the time of the Prophet that this question was asked, or was this when he was like the Khalifa and the Prophet is not there? I do not know. But even if it was after the death of the Prophet, this was a matter of ikhtilaf, okay, amongst the companions. Okay. And this proves that the companions were also human beings and they did not have all of the knowledge of the deen, meaning one person did not know everything. This is why just because, you know, like if a scholar has said something, then we don't take it as a final thing. If there is a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that contradicts that, then we will, you know, take the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. So when you analyze all of the hadith together, then how do you resolve the contradiction that the companions who said that wudu is sufficient, then they said this based on their understanding of how it was, you know, before, in the early period. And the other scholars who said that no ghusl is necessary, they said because of the evidence that they had from the Prophet ﷺ. So when you put them all together, then you can reconcile that the matter was abrogated. You're in the state of Janaba and you do wudu and you're going to sleep. Can you read your Ayatul Kursi, your Adkar? Yes, you can. Which one? Yeah, in a tirmidhi and there's also one reported by Muslim. If a person develops a habit, okay, meaning this is what he does, 
and he is able to do wudu, is able to take a bath, he is sleeping for a prolonged period of time, and still he does not bother to, then that is makruh. I mean, we don't know the situation the Prophet ﷺ was in. Perhaps he slept for only a short while. We know that his night sleep was also disrupted. Right? He did not sleep for a long stretch of time. So like I said earlier, that if you're sleeping for just an hour or two, not for an extended period of time, it's not a habit of yours, then in that case, you can sleep without wudu even. But it's better to do wudu. Like we learned earlier, that the masnoon way of performing ghusl is that the Prophet ﷺ would do wudu, like we learned in so many ahadith, and then he would pour water on his head and the rest of the body and the feet at the end. This is the masnoon way. But performing wudu is not necessary for the ghusl of janaba. Because in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does He say? What's the command for the ghusl? فَالطَّهَّرُوا Obtain tahara. Okay? So, the process has not been mentioned. The process has not been described. For wudu, the steps have been mentioned. But for ghusl, the steps have not been mentioned. The instructions have not been given. And this is the reason why the scholars say that it is permissible that a person just washes himself. So for example, if a person takes a lap through a swimming pool, from one end to the other, he's thoroughly wet. Ghusl is done. As long as obviously the intention is there that he is coming out of the state of janab. Zakara is to remember. Mm-hmm. No, the word dhakar is a noun. The verb dhakara, he remembers. Okay? The word dhakarun is a noun and that refers to the male private part. Because al-dhakar wal-unsa. Dhakar is the male, unsa is the female. So the word dhakar refers to the male private part in the Arabic language. I'm just thinking how important it is to continue to learn and take knowledge as a whole. If we study, let's say somebody opens this chapter and they only read hadith number 291. And they say, no, no, I've read it in Bukhari and it is the action of Sahaba. They're reading only one hadith. So incomplete knowledge sometimes can do big damages. It is very important for us, all of us, to realize that even if we've completed a couple of courses, even if we have completed the Kitabul Wudu here, there is still more out there. There is so much to learn. So, And this is the reason why I kept you in suspense, right, of Kitabul Hayb, that we'll deal with it when it comes, inshallah. Because there are many things that we need to learn about that too, inshallah. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك ونتوب اليك السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته